A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode is the final episode in our ongoing series about girls' traditional education in the modern era, where I covered um, development of traditional religious Jewish education for girls in Europe and the Beis Yaakov movement. And today, in the final episode in this uh, ongoing series, part five of this uh, series, I'll discuss a little bit about the rebuilding after the world, the Jewish world in Europe was decimated during the Holocaust, and how traditional girls' education was rebuilt in both the United States and in Israel. Um, before that, and unrelated to this series, but just um, it's important to clarify, so I um, I'd like to do so. And I, just a few days ago, with the tragic uh, passing of Rabbi David Feinstein, so I had a um, a uh, commemorative a tribute uh, episode to Rabbi David Feinstein, um, and and uh, two clarifications are in place. Uh, one small one, but about seventeen people uh, alerted me to it. So I feel it's important to point out. Um, Rabbi David Feinstein's mother, in other words, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's wife, I incorrectly uh, referred to her as Rabbi Sima, where in fact it was Rabbi Shima. Shema. Um, and apparently it's very important, so I just want to put that out there. The second clarification is overall, I, I called it, I guess it's somewhat of a misleading title, definitely was not intentional, The Life of Rabbi David Feinstein, when it was really more his background, his family, his the place where he grew up in, in Luban, and his parents, Reb Meisha, Reb Meisha Feinstein's rabbinate in Luban and Russia, and under the communism in Russia, which is the home that Reb David Feinstein grew up in. And there was very little directly about Reb David Feinstein and his life, and I feel that may have been a bit misleading. It was definitely not intentional. I was not trying to fool anybody, but a few people expressed a surprise so just wanted to clarify that that maybe the title should have been a little bit uh a little bit more um specific and it was unintentional so i hope you enjoyed the episode anyway and if you didn't then uh, listen to it again you probably will 
Um, either way, getting back to our base Yaakov series. So here we are in the final, uh, final uh, installment where we have the base Yaakov is booming in Poland before the war. And it's not only in Poland, it's in Slovakia and Lithuania and Hungary and all over. And, um, but primarily in Poland. And then comes the war, Hitler and the Holocaust. There's an attempt to continue Beis Yaakov, even in the ghettos. Uh, the head of the Beis Yaakov movement, Rabbi Yehuda Leib Orli and the Gera Chassid, he escapes from Krakow, where the flagship institution was. He makes it to Warsaw. And in the Warsaw ghetto, he maintains uh, several Beis Yaakovs. He oversees several Beis Yaakov schools that continue to function within the uh, Warsaw ghetto and in other ghettos uh, as well. And uh, the heroism of Beis Yaakov uh, alumni, even in the concentration camps, is very uh, dis- much described in detail in the book by uh, Robertson Pearl Banish and To Vanquish the Dragon, which has become a classic. It was already a classic when I was growing up, so I imagine it's still a classic today. But when we look at the world after the war, the void, the entire world of Eastern Europe is gone, and there's a need to rebuild and start from scratch. By the way, in the DP camps, in the displaced persons camps following the war, and they were established in Germany, in the uh, in the American and British zones in Germany, Austria, and Italy. So there were base Yaakovs that were founded, actually, by, both by alumni and activists and and uh, all kinds of things that um, Kleisenberger Rebbe was involved also in, in to a certain extent and funded by the joint and Vat Hatzala and other things. It's a whole story also. But it obviously wasn't going to be a permanent solution. And in the two new locations of where the Jewish people was being rebuilt, the United States and in what was still then Palestine, what was soon to become Israel, so Beis Yaakov, or girls' education in general, not only Beis Yaakov, was going to have to be rebuilt, if it was going to be rebuilt. So we're going to explore a little bit about how that uh, took place, and we'll start with uh, Israel, and then we'll go to the United States, and uh, we'll take it take it from there. So in fact, the seeds are all planted, both in, in America and in Israel, are planted before the war. In, in 1933, a fellow by the name of Mayor Sharansky, he founds the first Beis Yaakov in Tel Aviv, and and that and he's he's a pioneer. He literally is a very energetic, charismatic individual who goes from place to pl- place in Israel, fighting for then Palestine to build girls' education. And the Tel Aviv branch takes off, and he he attempts to. Uh, to start uh, further branches, and there's a failed attempt in Yerushalayim that only gets off the ground later, and uh, a couple, two years later in 1935 by other people, we'll get to that in a second, and uh, he's he's fighting for, uh, for, for, you know, Beis Yaakov to, to, uh, to start. Um, then uh, we have, so he's, he's the pioneer, he's the one who, who gets it off the ground. Several institutions, not just in Tel Aviv. Uh, then there's a pair of Gera Hasidim. First, Reb Lieberman, who starts the first Beis Yaakov in Yerushalayim in 1935. So again, this is all 
when there's still a you know booming uh, Jewish community in Poland, when that's the center of Jewish life, when the Beis Yaakov movement is growing over there, and and, and uh, no one knows what's on the horizon. This is just because there's immigrants coming to uh, Palestine then, and there's a need for girls' education. This is not rebuilding. This is not. Uh, this is laying the groundwork for the Jewish community in in Israel. A couple of years later, of of Pinchas Levine from the Ger Rebbe's family, the Levines, the Bendina Rav, Rav Chanachenach Levine uh, was the Rav in uh, Bendin, who, um, who, whose sons, you know, he was the son-in-law of the, of the Ger Rebbe, and his, uh, his, um, his sons all became prominent in Ger afterwards. Um, Richa Meyer Levine was the head of the Goddess Yisrael, so his brother, Pinchas Levine, uh, partnered uh, with uh, Lieberman, and they built the uh, Beis Yaakov in Yerushalayim. That's that's the basis of it. The the old yeshiv of Yerushalayim had their own version of a girls' school that maintained the the, uh, the maintained it in Yiddish. Um, the new Beis Yaakovs were in Hebrew. Well, they they were part of the new yeshiv. They were part of the again. They were founded by Has, Hasidic uh, men, uh, but they were part of the new yeshiv, and uh, and that's the dynamics of the new old yeshiv divide in the 1940s. And in fact, um, I spoke to um, the daughter of one of the first teachers in the Beis Yaakov in Yerushalayim, and her her mother was a student of Sarah Shanira in Krakow, and she she actually was also from Bendin, and she um, moved to Israel in the 1930s, and uh, Reb Hill Lieberman begged her to come teach in his Beis Yaakov, his new Beis Yaakov in Yerushalayim. She started off in Haifa. And he said to her, most of my teachers are secular. I don't have religious teachers. And you studied in the Krakow Seminary by Sarah Shadira, so we need you. We're desperate for teachers. They're talking about a situation where the first Beis Yaakov had secular teachers teaching most of the subjects. And the religious subjects, the strictly religious subjects, like Chumash and whatever, may have been taught by a religious teacher, but anything, you know, anything else was taught by secular teachers and possibly even the religious ones for a period of time. But that's, that's, uh, that was the situation. So it starts to get built up. And then what happens is, following the war, when there's already the decimation is clear and the need to rebuild is clear, then it becomes a whole different program and a whole different story. And the way I mentioned in, in the last couple of episodes, the role of the German Jews, the Tyrem Derecheretz Jews in the Polish uh, Beis Yaakov and the influence that decisive had the influence that it had both on the movement and on Sarishnir personally. So you have that in um, in Israel too. There's a fellow by the name of Yosef Avram Wolf Wolf, and he shows up in Bnei Brak, and he becomes a close confidant of the Chazayin Ish, and with his encouragement, he starts the first Beis Yaakov in the new community of Bnei Brak. This is already post-war. About almost a, you know several years post-war in the 1950s already, in the early 50s, 51, 50, something like that, and uh, and he starts the new Beisako. Uh, now here it's already with the vision of rebuilding a, a world that was lost, and this is this is therefore an institution that ha- eventually has leaves a lo- large imprint on the growth of the ultra-orthodox community in the state of Israel because this is already with a very specific ideology. It's during these years that the vision and ideology of the Chazenish and others 
of of forming of forming to rebuild the world that was lost, of forming what came to be known later on in Israeli society as the Chevrat Halomdim, the Society of Learners, which becomes a a an ideal that the that the men should study Torah for long term in order to uh, replenish and rebuild what was lost, which was a decide you know a decided difference in in uh, in Jewish society than it had been pre war. But uh, it was seen as a necessary step at the time, which is a, definitely a story in itself, which we'll hopefully get to one day, the forming of the Haredi community in the, the state of Israel in the 1950s, the founding, I guess. Um, so the Beis Yaakov in this context comes to play a decisive role. Up until this point, Beis Yaakov was a, basically a lifesaver, was to prevent uh, Jewish girls from uh, from uh, going towards to public school to secularization, uh, you know, to literally save them to make sure that that that, that there are Jewish that there are religious or traditional uh, Jewish girls into this. That was that's how it was in Sarshnir's Poland. That's how it was. What we're going to talk about in the United States, and that's even how it was in the 1930s in Israel. And here with uh, with uh, Wolf's institution, it was with a new program. Here it wasn't to save them for to become religious. They they pretty much felt they're confident that the girls would remain religious. Here it was with gonna with gonna be a, a higher ideal. Not just that they should be religious, but that they should support a Torah lifestyle, and that they would marry someone who is dedicated to a life of long term study in in a kolel after he's married. And not only that, but they would go out and get a job and make a living to support their husband and their families in learning. So the the educational philosophy was fundamentally different. It, it was no longer to to save Yiddishkeit. It was to build the Torah home, um, and that became the, the, a new philosophy, a new ideology for Beis Yaakov. That was a marked difference from what it had been until this point, and it caught on. Not only that, but it necessitated the building of a teacher seminary, um, because because that was seen as a safe job opportunity for these future kolal wives. They would have. There was a need for new schools. There was a demographic growth uh, in the in the community, and therefore there were need for new schools. New schools needed new teachers, and they wanted the teachers from within that they should be trained from within the system. So therefore, they there was a lot of hiring, and there and so there was seen as a, as a great job opportunity. People who would be part of the chevrat talomdim, part of the society of learners. They, they, uh, their wives could teach in the Beis Yaakov, and uh, and they would be trained in the teachers' seminary. It would get it was you know the the uh, Beis Yaakovs of course were supported still are supported by the state of Israel's Ministry of Education. So your salary is a government salary, so it's pretty much a guaranteed salary. Comes with benefits and a pension and summer vacation, and decent hours and decent pay. So it was considered a dream job for a Kailal family, and that's what, uh, and that's, that became part of the system, and that became the idea of seminary, of teacher seminaries. Um, of course, later on, the 1970s and 80s, it became a victim of its own success because the demographic growth of the community was so vast and grew so fast that the supply of teachers far outweighed the demand, and they necessitated a re- reforming of the system to be able to offer them additional job tracks as well, but that's a whole other story, and that also brings us too close to contemporary uh, times. So that's an, a, basic, a basic overview of what went on in uh, Israel at the time. In the United States, it took a, a bit of a different track. 
what happens is in uh, in the United States it, it grows um, uh, slowly. Also starts in the 1930s, but there are attempts to start it earlier. In fact, Shraga Fivel Mendelovich, the great architect of of Torah, so everyone knows that he was the principal of Tervedas, and everyone knows that he founded the high school of Tervedas, and almost everyone knows that he started Beis Elyon and and Tyro Masaira and many many other things. But he was also involved in uh, getting trying to get girls' schools off the ground. Um, they had first he was involved in in an all an afternoon girls' school in the nineteen twenties, uh, nineteen twenty five. Uh, that 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 was a short lived attempt. Um, and then we, I mentioned several times the Shalamis, uh, uh, girls school that was, that was, that was not a Shagafal. It was a different, uh, different, uh, a different idea. And in Borough Park, the Shalamis school, 1930, um, a more Zionist oriented religious uh, school. Um, but still the idea that it was a separate school for girls for Torah education, it was very much a novelty. And then you have an arrival on the scene. Of Rebetzin Vichna Kaplan, who is a, an alumnus of of Sarah Shanira. she had studied by Sarah Shanira in in Krakow, and she was dispatched by um, by by the by the school when she graduated the Krakow Teacher Seminary. She was dispatched to Brisk of all places to start a girls' school to save the Brisker girls, which she did, and um, and then she goes ahead and marries an American. A student of the Kamenitz Yeshiva, Baruch Kaplan, and uh, and she she married she married him only when they, she, the the shidduch was uh, the idea was given when they were still in Europe, but she only married him when she arrived in America. And when she comes to America in the late thirties, nineteen thirty seven, nineteen thirty eight, she goes ahead and tries to start a girls' school in Williamsburg, where she settled. Um, so. There had already been other attempts. There was a base Sarah, and there was a base Rachel, and they 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 started and failed. They, they, there was a lack of interest, and people were disinterested. Their girls were going to public school. They were going to get careers. They were integrating into American life, and it just wasn't happening. And there was a few activists within the Williamsburg Jewish community who were interested in in starting uh, uh, a girls' school and. Um, so first, Rebetzin Vichnik Kaplan, she starts uh, a a high school actually in her uh, in her living room, um, like like her mentor Sarah Shanir did, and she um, she struggled in the beginning. Uh, she eventually, and her husband leaves his lucrative position in the, as a rebbe in Tarvadas to help her out and literally go knocking on from door to door, both to fundraise and to beg parents to send them to the. Uh, to the to this school and and uh, and and until it you know eventually starts to grow. Um, Raburi Hellman, who was an Alta Mirror, um, the father of Yitzhak Hellman in the Mir Yeshiva today. So he was the principal of the of the school for many years. The first teacher seminary is started by Rebetzin Vichna Kaplan again in her living room to provide teachers for this new system. This is an evening program that teenage girls who are were trying to have jobs during the day to support their families would go for a few hours in the evening, sit around her dining room table and have this teacher seminary. And when they were like 19, they were approved of as teachers by Rebetzin Michna Kaplan and dispatched to one of the new uh, Beis Yaakov schools 
in Williamsburg or or East New York or or the Lower East Side, wherever they were they were starting, and uh, and that's how the Beis Yaakov got off the ground. Um, but uh, but Beis Yaakov wasn't the only one. Uh, you had you know when the with the founding of Breuer's community on in, up in Washington Heights, so he starts a girls' school just like they had back in Frankfurt. So they have. That that uh, that's you know that becomes a a uh, a uh, a a girls' school around the same time. You have eventually the different Hasidic groups who, for whatever for one reason or another, uh, didn't you know didn't take the exact Beis Yaakov model, or they didn't uh, ideologically identify with it, or they weren't affiliated with Agudas Yisrael, and Beis Yaakov was too closely affiliated. So for whatever reason, they they had different names. So you had uh, but they 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 each had their own girls' schools, and the Friedeke Rebbe Lubavitch Rebbe uh, starts the Beis Rifka, which becomes the Lubavitch flagship girls' school, and even Satmer starts Beis Rachel. So the you know, the biggest uh, opponents of Beis Yaakov and and Agudas Yisrael back in Europe, but with the rebuilding of the decimated world after the war, there is a need seen and accepted and understood by all involved. That uh, that in order to rebuild it, we have to invest in Jewish education, and sending your girls to public school in the United States is not going to be a great guarantee for a Jewish future. So, Beis Rachel and Benay Siyan and Babav and uh, and others, plenty more examples as well uh, of that phenomenon. Um, but what uh, what eventually what 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 happens at almost a parallel time to Rebbe Zinvichna Kaplan's activities. Is uh, that she was primarily focused on high school and then later a teacher's seminary? But what about elementary school? Uh, from you know, you got to start from scratch. So there was several Williamsburg uh, activists, community activists at the time, who who decided that they, you know after these previous failed attempts in Williamsburg that I mentioned, they're going to make it happen. And with the world going up in flames across the Atlantic. In Europe, so the future of the Jewish people is at stake, and it's going to have to be rebuilt in the United States. And they again went knocking door to door to try to get parents to send their children to schools, and there was a lot of apathy. Very often, the parents didn't want because their kids, their children were being successful in public schools, and here if they would go to a non-accredited religious school, so what would become of their future of their children? You're talking about very religious parents, but the the, uh, the the need wasn't seen as a necessity yet. Sometimes parents would say the old the old claim that was said in Europe when Beis Yaakov was started: we're not allowed to send our daughters to a religious school because we can't have our daughters study Torah and not to be taught Torah, and that had to be combated. So, and very often, most often, the girls themselves weren't interested in going. Why should they leave their friends and their path to success? And even if their parents would try to encourage them to go, very often the girls would simply refuse. They did not want to. Um, but this school got off the ground, and they took in a recent refugee uh, arrival, Rav Rom Newhouse, an incredible uh, person who is also a Yaki, a German Jew, who had studied in Frankfurt by Rav Breuer, but but later on he he more prominently he had studied in the Tells Yeshiva. He went to Eastern Europe and became a very very prominent student of Tells, and he even ran the Yavne Girls School in Kovna in Lithuania before the war, and he escaped he escapes at the beginning of the war. He arrives in Williamsburg, 
and he first is involved in the refounding of Tal's Yeshiva in Cleveland, but at, the, at almost the parallel time, he is appointed to to head this first uh, girl at Beis Yaakov uh, Girls School in, in Williamsburg. And he is a very dynamic, very charismatic uh, personality, the um, magnetic. The, the, the girls were awed by him. The, the young, the, the, it's a grade school that goes up to, through the eighth grade, and he infused them with this mission. Um, he's giving this responsibility to 10, 11-year-olds. He would speak to them and say, the entire world is destroyed across, uh, you know, across the ocean. And in America, all your friends are going to public school and, and there's no future for the Jewish people. And he would tell these, this group, this class of like seven, ten-year-olds, uh, the future of the Jewish people rests on your shoulders. And they really felt like they were the vanguard and they were the pioneers and they sacrificed a lot. And very often they weren't happy. And, uh, they, they, you know, there's lots of fundraising struggles in the beginning and lots of disciplinary struggles in the beginning until they got state accredited and until they, until they got teachers for secular studies, for the general studies, for the Jewish studies. Each and every step was, you know, a fascinating journey, which, you know, I can't get into the details now over lack of time, but, um, but, uh, in, until it, uh, really is able to build up and get off the ground. Now, Rebetzin Vichna Kaplan, the most interesting part of her starting the high school um, is that before she leaves Europe, she visits the headquarters of Beis Yaakov in Warsaw and obtains their permission to start a Beis Yaakov in the United States. In other words, this is her vision before she even gets married, before she gets on the boat to America, she's starting Beis Yaakov. Not only that, but unlike Mayor Sharansky or Hill Lieberman in Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim, or unlike Abraham Newhouse in the Williamsburg activist, she has her Beis Yaakov officially under the auspices of the Beis Yaakov movement in Poland. And that's how she founds it. And that's her vision. She's actually the only one from that whole bunch that I mentioned that's a student of Sarshaner. She feels obligated to the movement. And she uh, wants it to have a, a similar you know, platform as the original movement. She tries, and her vision is eventually when there's no more central office in Warsaw, when the whole place is destroyed there. So she wants to found the branches of the movement into one organized uh, network like it was in Poland, which it did for a certain amount of time, 1950s and 60s. It eventually fell apart. And it's not really a formal, organized, uh, centralized movement with the central offices anymore in the United States or in Israel. Um, but that was Rebetzin Vichna Kaplan's vision. She even had, she tried to re, re, uh, revitalize the Beis Yaakov Journal, um, which had been such a prominent feature of, uh, of the Beis Yaakov of Eliezer Gershon Friedensen and Ludge in Poland before the war. It does happen in Israel in the 1950s and 60s, even 70s, I believe. There was a Beis Yaakov Journal. Today, all of them, I believe, have been digitized and they're all online. And it's a fascinating source of history because you had these uh, Polish Jewish writers writing about pre-war Jewish life uh, as history articles in these Beis Yaakov journals. And today you can search through it and see these amazing stories and biographical portraits of... They're the only source for it, literally. Um, an amazing resource. But uh, that fell apart as well. Um, but another aspect of it was the summer camp. 
And Sarshanir made summer trips and the mountains and the fresh air and the resorts part of the educational Beis Yaakov experience and the singing and the togetherness. And Rebbe Tzivichan Kaplan attempted it also in 1942, 1943, during the war to open a Beis Yaakov camp. It didn't work out. But shortly afterwards, the Bavram Newhouse, 1944, started it and, it, and it happened. It got off the ground. It was the first girls' camp. And I remember when I uh, discussed uh, the summer camps in the mountains on the Caskills episode, I mentioned uh, the Camp Sternberg girls' camp, and I incorrectly said that that was the first girls' camp. The Beis Yaakov uh, girls' camp pre, pre, uh, predated that by decades, and it was there, and it was on the ground, and it was to to reinforce the the uh, atmosphere of, of the educational atmosphere, the, the Jewish atmosphere uh, that the of the that the summer months uh, could provide, and in the context that a camp could provide, and that the personality of Avram Newhouse and his Rebbitzin were able to provide, uh, and not just within the uh, classroom framework. So that's a little bit about how Beis Yaakov took off in the United States and in Israel in the immediate pre-war and post-war times. Um, this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, uh, sponsorships, virtual tours, tours, uh, lectures, and anything else. Uh, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.